Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I have the text there also in your bulletin. We return to the last verses of Ephesians 1. Uh, You may notice I already covered 15 through 23, but in preaching that I mentioned to you that I intended to take a special sermon to focus on verses 19 through 23, a particular angle on those verses focusing on Jesus and his lordship, his sovereignty, his kingship. I know that there are probably many pastors in churches today who are doing a sermon that's um, in their minds relevant to uh, the immediate circumstances of the culture, and I don't fault that, um, but I can't think of a more relevant sermon to our culture, to the world, than the lordship, the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. So we continue on in the text by God's providence and come to these glorious verses. You remember that the whole of this section is capstoning a chapter about our great, great, great salvation and all the benefits that are ours in union with Christ because of the choice of the Father in the agency of the Holy Spirit. It's magnificent buildup. And at the end, Paul is saying, before going into chapter 2, he's sharing some of what he prays for the Ephesians and for the church of all ages. And he prays for them that they would be able to have the spiritual wherewithal to understand all of salvation, um, to see it active in their life, to recognize how it applies to their every movement, what God has done for them in Christ. And we can't gather that unless he gives us the ability to discern that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, Paul prays for us after laying out this magnificent great salvation. And when he does so, he focuses upon the person of Christ, to no surprise, and his lordship, which serves to encourage us in this endeavor to grasp who we are in Christ. Not just to get big fat heads filled with this stuff, but it would necessarily make us active in our life as we follow Christ, as we, be, we are zealous for good works, as Lance just prayed. So hear now God's holy word. I'm going to read starting at verse 15 down to verse 23, but you know that our focus is 19 through 23 this morning. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we come to your word and ask for your aid by your Spirit, so that we might understand this very rich section of Scripture. Please open the eyes of our hearts that we might be moved to a deeper devotion and love for you. 
Please give us the help we need to understand the greatness of our salvation, and even more so, the greatness of our Savior Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. The greatness of our salvation and the greatness of Christ. A couple summers ago, when I was teaching at the seminary in Colorado, I would go on hikes in the afternoon with the various uh, students and their children oftentimes. And there was a group of us that went on a hike that year. There was a lot of snow that winter, so there's a lot of the creeks were just overflowing and swift moving. It was great, but there were wider creeks as a result. And to get over some of them, you had to get a bit of a running start and then jump over them. And in this one particular spot, there's a rock wall right on the other side of where you land. So when you land, if you don't land just right, if you don't stick the landing, you're going to go right into the rock wall. And the first few, there were some casualties among us. Ran right into the wall, and there was, you know, seminary students are pretty soft, unlike professors, you know. And they banged up against the wall. And we started deciding, when people do this, we should just cushion them when they come over. So several of us would stand in front of the wall, someone would jump over, and they wouldn't slam into the wall. The kids were no trouble, they were those skinny little things, but the dudes were a little bit bigger, especially being in seminary for a while. One of them was Tom, Tom Brown, who was 260 pounds, and he was a former rugby player who still thought he was a rugby player, and he just uh, came up last, and we're looking at each other like, who's stopping Tom when he jumps over this thing? None of us signed up. No, no one wanted that. And it was so cute because this little boy, who was only seven years old, couldn't be 40 pounds, he stands at the, the, right at the end of the creek and says, Daddy, come to me. Just come to me. I mean, it would have just been crush crush if this happened. I thought, what a promise, this little boy. He wants to be there to help save his dad from getting hurt. Uh, What an aspiration on the part of this little boy to be able to do this great thing and stop this big man from getting hurt. I mean, it's a, a magnificent promise of his, but he had no ability whatsoever to backstop it, literally. No way to fulfill what he was promising. And that's like so many promises. Um, they're big and they're lofty. We may say them or great teachers will give you their ideas. Um, but they can't back it. There's no way they can prove it. And that's where we come up with something very different when we meet God and when we see in his word what is on display through this great salvation in the great Christ who fulfills this salvation. The promises in Ephesians 1 are magnificent and they're lofty. We are promised redemption in Christ. We're promised the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. We're promised to be adopted sons and daughters of God through Christ. We're justified before God, meaning we're right before God. It's a legal standing. It's true. We're also sanctified. It's this ongoing work God's doing to make us more and more like Christ. All these are promised to us by God in Christ. Great promises, a great salvation. We're even promised the ministry of the Holy Spirit to assure us of our adoption and seal us in this place. We are even promised a future glory in Christ. Huge promises, massive statements in Ephesians 1. They are declarations of a great salvation. Now they're coming to this climactic point where we see what's backstopping it. We see who is assuring us of this great salvation. Because the greatness of our salvation that we discover here and in the whole of Scripture is directly related to the greatness of Christ. And that's awesome news for all of us. Because of Christ and who he is, the greatness of our salvation is absolutely certain and true. It's not just lofty, hopeful language. It's a description of what is ours on the basis of the absolute Lord of the universe. The greatness of our salvation is directly related to the greatness of Christ. And in that case, brothers and sisters, we are in a good place. 
the greatness of Christ could be summarized under the, uh, the categories of lordship for our purposes here. Call him king, the sovereign one. All of these are synonymous. When I use Lord, I don't mean small L. I mean capital L. And in this passage, Paul shares what he prays, and he prays for God's power to work so that we know our salvation, and that power is linked to the lordship of Christ and the power that's expressed through Jesus as Lord. First of all, he's Lord of life and death, for that matter. That's where this starts, rooted in his resurrection. It's not a little bit of power God uses with us. It's the power of the resurrection continuing to work to born us again and to make us able to understand the salvation, to open the eyes of our hearts. But he's also Lord of all authorities, both visible and invisible, Uh, the kings and queens and presidents and parliaments, but also the spiritual powers, the prince of the power of the air, all those things that work behind the visible powers, visible and invisible, Jesus is the Lord over those. And then, interestingly, you'd think that would be the high point, but the high point is this. It's the logical flow the apostle prays. He's also the Lord of the church, us here gathered, this motley crew that we are, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, his bride, his body, as the passage says. So, being Lord over life and death, Lord over all authorities, and Lord over the church, we can see and appreciate and give praise to God for the absolute lordship of Christ. And I would suggest that is the most relevant message we could hear in any day, and especially in the day in which we live. Jesus Christ, the absolute Lord of everything. Let's look at verse 19 and verse 20, and we'll see that it's anchored first, his lordship is anchored first in his sovereignty or kingship or command over life itself, which necessarily means he's Lord over life and death. The promise of salvation revealed in Ephesians 1, made by God and secured by Jesus, we know this because he is raised from the dead, and this is the power that is at work. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. What great might? That great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If there are levels of power of God for God, we can't measure them. It says it's immeasurable. But the power that raised Christ from the dead, that's the power that is dynamically working in the life of believers by God's appointment. And Jesus is the Lord over life as on display by his resurrection. How is the power of God described here that raised him from the dead? It says the immeasurable greatness of his power. And it's toward us. It's working for us. It's effective for us. That's what the language means. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So the belief that we have is part of the power he's shown so that we can believe, so that we can trust, that we can rest in Jesus. One commentator did his own um, linguistic translation of this section of scripture. In the portion that calls God's power the immeasurable greatness of his power, he says, the superabundant magnitude of his power at work. I just don't want anyone to stop with simply thinking, and not that this is simple, but simply thinking of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the prototype for our resurrection, all true. We know we'll be raised again because he's raised again. Absolutely true. It's our hope. It's, it's everything to us. But there's really even more to it. That Jesus is Lord over life is what's displayed there. So we can be sure of our every day on earth being directly appointed by the Lord of life and death. Uh, we can be certain of his control over these things. 
and it's the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead that's still at work in his church and among his people. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's a great starting point on the lordship of Christ, that he is Lord over life and he is Lord over death. Those two verses, by the way, verse 19 and verse 20 that I've repeated a few times on purpose, another commentator said, these two verses, 19 and 20, all that's packed in there, they form a whole concept for God's overwhelming sovereign power to bring redemption to pass. I just want you to sense that same power that raised Jesus from the dead and really also restored him, gave him his glor- a glorified body after being devastated by the act of the crucifixion. That kind of resurrection power, that's what is at work in you and in us. And Jesus' defeat over death in that way is the stamp of his lordship over all of life. He holds the keys to death in Hades. Our great enemy is death, and Jesus is lord over it. Uh, There's not one person who lives a second longer or a second less than Jesus, the lord over life and death, ordains. Now, I am not saying that we can wrap our minds around all the intricacies of all the death we see, but make no mistake, Christ is lord over all of it, you included. And that will, when you grasp that, that will set you free of the worst fear that we have as people. It's in his hands, and you can trust his hands. You know, it is right to think of the climax of resurrection being Christ's resurrection. But when he was in his earthly ministry, before he went to the cross, he gave on purpose a very vivid display of him being the Lord of life. His good friend Lazarus, who had stayed with many times, was sick and he got word that he was sick. Now, Jesus could have gone right away and healed him and Lazarus wouldn't have died. But Jesus, for the purpose of displaying God's glory and his lordship over things like life and death, he delays his his going to see Lazarus, which, by the way, shows you he's in control of life or death. It's up to him. And he had purpose for this particular death. So he waits a few days before Lazarus dies, and then by the time he gets there, he's been there dead four days. So what is Jesus going to do? Lazarus's sister Martha says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died, which is true if it would have been Jesus's will to be there. He could have stopped him from dying. But then she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now we know that she doesn't mean that Jesus might resurrect him. We know by what she says coming next. It was more of a nicety or a a thing of, a a notice of respect that maybe Jesus would bring comfort to us. Uh, He's dead and he's gone now, but you know, whatever you ask, you know, maybe it'll relieve our pain and suffering. That's probably what she was asking. We don't know if we're positive, but Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha's thinking to herself, well, I know the doctrine. I know all of us will rise again. I mean, that's, that's true. She believed in the resurrection. She said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know, it's just a nice thing people say at funerals. Thank you, Jesus. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she responds, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Jesus comes to the tomb. Deeply moved, the passage says, and came to the tomb. Deeply moved. I mean, he's the, the sovereign one. He's deeply moved because of the, magni- the magnitude of sin that has caused death to enter human existence. Uh, moved by the display of glory that will soon be had. 
the pain that people have because of sin's entrance, but also move because he's the Lord of life. and He's come to reverse this curse. He has come to give us a way to eternal life. The heaviness of the moment. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And we see Martha still doesn't see this. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me, that you may believe that I am the Lord of life, Jesus is saying. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what could anything do but come if the Lord calls? Even a person dead four days and in decay has to answer when the Lord of life says, come forth. And that's exactly what you did, by the way, because you were as dead as Lazarus. And if you believe on Christ, it's because he called upon you and the Lord of eternal life cannot be rebuffed. Thank God for that. You have to come when, God, when Jesus calls. That's what the effectual call is. It will have its effect. And it's in the ter- verse itself, working in us, effectually working in us, this power of Christ's resurrection. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in, with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus is the Lord of life. The resurrection power of Christ is at work in each believer to help them appreciate the extent of the implications of the blessings they have received in Christ. But Jesus is not only the Lord of life, which really should be enough for us. Whatever happens, we know he's Lord over our days. But there's more to it that he wants us to have as comfort. Having removed the biggest enemy, which is death, from our fear, he then goes to the next level, which probably is a big concern to people. What about all the authorities over us that seem to have sovereignty over our lives? the governing authorities, authorities in some other facet of your life, the visible authorities. What about the invisible authorities that we know work behind the scenes, the demonic powers, um, those things that we can't control, the angelic beings? What about those realms? They worry us too. Paul prays in a way that hopefully God will relieve us by giving us a knowledge of Jesus' lordship over all authorities as well. Look at verse 20. Raised him from the dead, and what did he do? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is a putting Jesus on equal terms with God the Father, seated at his right hand. When he's ascended, he is seated at the right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Jesus is Lord over both the visible and invisible authorities of this universe. He's Lord over all the authorities. Let's take them in order. First, Jesus is Lord over the visible authorities in this world. Being seated at God's right hand declares him as God's equal. All earthly authorities are under Jesus' authority. Kings, queens, presidents, prime ministers, parliaments, councils, all below the lordship of Christ. The imagery of being seated at God's right hand is a statement of Jesus' equality with God and authority and an executive power. In antiquity, when a great general won a battle, it could be at times the king would honor that great general by seating him at his right hand. And this is a display of complete trust 
in the general to even execute his own orders. Think about it. If a king is sitting there, the two symbols of a king would be a scepter and a sword. He'd hold it in his right hand and sit on his throne. Well, if you seat someone at your right hand, you're saying to them, you have the ability to reach over and stop the scepter or lift the scepter, stop the sword or lift the sword. You are equal with me. Seated at God's right hand means that Jesus is the Lord over all authorities, visible and invisible. And here we're focusing a bit on his, vis- on his authority over visible ones. Verse 20, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is all about Jesus' equality with God as king. It's true. Jesus was always equal with God, but this description of Jesus is now after his finished work, he's raised and he's ascended and he's taking on his new role, if you will, at least in so far as we understand it, is extending his kingdom from heaven, working his kingdom from God's right hand. How far does this power Extend, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So if you're worried about the current governance, Jesus is Lord over it. In the one to come, Jesus will be Lord over it too, even though it changes and on earth. And he puts all things under his feet. Under his feet, that's a bit of a picture of a footstool where someone would just rest their feet on it. It would be subservient to him. It would serve him. And the nations are a footstool to Christ, the Lord of it all. Especially, especially the kings and the queens and the presidents and the parliaments and the prime ministers of earth. Especially them. These are symbols of having power and authority, these kinds of terms, under one's feet or a footstool. It seems that Paul is directly quoting King David in, from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, 6 says this, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. So David, even in himself, is a forecast of the, the greater David, Jesus, to come. And when he's, when he's writing the Psalms, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and unbeknownst to him, to some level anyways, these are pictures of the Messiah, ultimately. In Psalm 110, we have this in the most um, obvious, overt form in all of the Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The messianic reign of Jesus, you could say, was initiated at his ascension when he was seated at the right hand of his father. He's Lord over all authorities there. He was given the place of supreme and executive authority. We can be sure of Jesus' sovereign command over earthly events and people. We can be certain of God's rule and reign despite the way things may appear. Things appear out of control for sure, chaotic for sure, but in reality, the king of the universe sits poised. His concern is the growth of his kingdom, which may be growing whether you think it is or not. Civil unrest, it unnerves us for sure, and we understand why. But it in no way evidences that Christ is not on the throne. The nations are raging, and that's not a sign of the sovereignty of man. It's the opposite. It's actually a sign of the sovereignty of God and what is to come. Again, King David in Psalm 2 wrote this. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So 
they rage because there is a setting against God. Uh, the only answer to any of what you see at any era, I could preach this in any day in history before Jesus comes back, the nations rage because they set themselves up against God. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, the nations say of God. He who sits, though, in the heavens laughs. That's the response. The power of display of people makes God laugh. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is his king? It's King Jesus. That's the answer. King Jesus. Further, he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So the response to any era in which we live, when we see raging and we see chaos and so forth, is first, the people of God should poise and say, who is our refuge? And go to Christ afresh. And we should call everyone to the same thing. Because that's where we find the actual peace that we're looking for so desperately. It must be under the sovereign king who's the king and authority over all other authorities. That's where we have to go. Jesus is Lord over the seen authorities in the world, the visible authorities in the world. But he is also Lord over the unseen spiritual authorities, which are also at work behind the visible ones. We know this because the language is careful. Verse 21, far above all, rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, keep those four synonymous terms in mind. Rule, authority, power, and dominion. Paul uses them elsewhere, and there he's clearly speaking not only of visible authorities, but demonic authorities or spiritual authorities. But then the last phrase in verse 21, and above every name that is named. We might pass over that quickly because we're not familiar with the Greco-Roman religious mind, if you will. The Ephesians would have been familiar with all sorts of spiritualism, the incantation of demons for demons, or divination was practiced, amulets and charms and various um, things that were spoken, like a, almost like a magic formula to bring a spirit to help them do whatever they wanted to have to be done. Calling to certain gods by name would somehow get them what they thought, or at least they thought it this way. But God, Paul comes saying, the true God who has bought you with the price of Christ, you only go through Christ. You go to Christ. He's the authority over everything. Don't go to other authorities for what you need. Use Jesus' name because he's the one who you go to. Uh, no other name is greater than Jesus' name. There is a Roman general, there was a Roman general, Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder um, was a commander in the Roman army during the time of the apostles, and he retired and wrote his memoirs, which was a common practice. And in those memoirs, he says of the, of the way the Romans looked at spiritualism, he said the Romans kept the name of some of their gods secret so that the enemies could not gain power over their city through the use of the name. If the enemies heard what gods they were praying to, they could use the name and then draw the gods over to them. And so Paul comes along and speaks to a people that have that kind of worldview, or at least that was what they came out of. And he says that Jesus is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. Rule, authority, power, and dominion. How do we know this isn't just the visible world? Because Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. You have these things in the visible world and in the invisible one. All things were created through him and for him, so says Paul in Colossians 1. Yes, when we think of rulers and authorities, we typically think of visible ones, but this is the spiritual realm now, the invisible world. And Jesus is authority over all of these as well. This is why we do pray in Jesus' name. It's not a magical formula. A Christian doesn't always have to say that for God to hear because you're in Christ. But when we say it as a discipline from many times, it reminds us as we're praying that we are coming to God through Christ because Christ is who gains us this access. Christ is the ultimate authority over all other authorities. So it's in Christ that we come before God with our prayers. Paul writing of Jesus' exalted state in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The bottom line here, Paul wants us in Ephesians first to be looking to Jesus for what they need. Don't look to other authorities. They can't provide what you need. No earthly authority or no invisible authority other than God, can provide what we actually need. And we actually do this a lot in our lives, unbeknownst to us maybe. Think of it this way. If we seek people, other people, to give us a sense of belonging and acceptance, if that's where we're going, we're calling upon people, if it will, if you will, to give us some importance or significance, we're calling upon a name that cannot provide that, it cannot deliver. If we seek or call upon money or stuff to provide what we need, we're calling upon a name that cannot supply for our true needs. If we go after physical pleasure to provide some fulfillment, we're calling upon a name that always ultimately falls short and never satisfies. We go to it as though it's the authority and it's not. If we chase after certain experiences to truly be alive, we're calling upon something that cannot deliver that and fades fast. If we strive for power or for fame or admiration, to feel significant, whatever it is. We're calling on, we're pursuing something, we're leaning or we're driving towards something that is incapable of delivering what we want. Those things don't have any power. We call upon Christ, who's the authority over all of these things, visible and invisible. Finally, you know, you would think, by the way, I've said this last week, you would think that the climax of this would be Jesus as the king of the universe. I mean, how do you go any higher than this? But the prayer is for the effectiveness of the church. First, that we would grasp all that's ours in Christ, and then we would be effective in the spread of God's kingdom through his gospel. And so with that, the climax is not just that Jesus is the king of the universe, it's that he is the head of the church. So the king of the universe has a purpose for the universe, and the way he fulfills it primarily is through his church, which is, as a metaphor, his body, his body on earth. So think of it this way. Jesus in the first century was there on earth in body, and he was ministering. He was doing all the various works that he did. He did signs. He preached sermons. He reached out to people. He healed people. He cast out demons. He preached God's word. Uh, he lived 
He obeyed God, and that was the display of God's glory. All these things he did. Ultimately, though, the main reason he came in doing all that was to offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice. So when he goes to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, he sends his spirit to unite his people together as his body now on earth, who are to emulate what Jesus was on earth, doing all these things as he ordains and gives ability to, according to his purposes, ultimately to point to the finished work of Christ. That's what the body of Christ does. And this is the great impact we have on the world. There's all sorts of discussion about what is the purpose of the church, its relationship with the world. That's not so much the point I'm making here. I'm making that what we know for sure is that he has made the church his body, his active agency on earth. So however you think it looks, we can be sure that the way he spreads his kingdom, the way it grows, is a spiritual growth that's accomplished as his people bring the message of the gospel. So how it looks outwardly, a subject of great debate. Whether it happens should not be a study of great, or should not be a great debate. Because this is what he's been doing. In fact, if you try to crush the church with persecution, which happens all over the place, guess what almost always happens? It just grows more. That's the beauty and the power of the kingdom. And the fact that he works through his church as the Lord over the church, it gives me great encouragement no matter what's going on in the world, wherever we may be. Look what it says in verse 22 and 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. I mean, you're king of the universe. That shouldn't be enough gives him the church, and he loves his church. He's died for his church. He's purified his church, and he's going to work through his church to further the glory of his Father's name. Verse 23, what's said about the church? His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is called a great many things in the Bible, a few. The bride of Jesus, the assembly of the upright, upright in Christ, the household of God, his flock, the Israel of God, the called out ones, the assembly of the saints, God's building. But accented here, he gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body. This is the greatest metaphor, I think. The fullness of him who fills all in all. His body is an active, dynamic, moving entity. It's it's moving. It's not just sitting. It's moving and it's doing things for him. It's a powerful metaphor that declares Jesus' activity on earth through his church. It continues on. James Boyce said, well, the church is to be a transforming power indeed through the presence of the risen Christ within, the greatest of all powers in this world. We should expect to see God do his work of salvation in people. And really the outward circumstances don't hinder that. And it's sometimes the worst of circumstances that we think are the most dire are actually accomplishing the greatest things for him. In Colossians 1, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's talking about Jesus. And he is the head of the body, the church, same progression. Holds everything together, and he's the head of the church, us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Here is the concluding thought. Jesus' lordship over his church is the way that his lordship over life and all authorities, visible and invisible, are put on display. The world can't know that Jesus is Lord of life and Lord of the authorities unless the church tells it. So those two truths, which are true whether they know it or not, God places in the commission of the church to declare. Jesus' lordship over his church is the way his gospel is proclaimed and people come to faith in him. 
Jesus' lordship over his church is the way that he manifests himself to the rest of the world. We have a great salvation, and it's on full display in Ephesians 1. The greatness of our salvation is directly related to the greatness of Christ. Finally, do you see this flow? This flow. In Ephesians 1, it starts, we are chosen by God to be united to Christ. It goes on to say that in Christ, we receive redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It keeps building up. In Christ, we are made right with God. We are in union with Jesus Christ. And still in Ephesians 1, we've had nothing about what we've done, just what God is doing. We are in union with Christ. The Holy Spirit, we are also told, seals us to Christ and assures us that we are adopted sons and daughters. How can we be sure that God can do all of this? Well, Paul wants us, he prays for this because he knows it'll be difficult for us to be sure in our own power. So he prays that God would open the eyes of our hearts. And he does so asking for God to draw upon the power that is immeasurable because of the superabundant magnitude of his strength that is working on our behalf. Because Jesus is Lord over life and death, we can now be free of dread about the life to come. Because Jesus is the Lord over visible authorities on earth and invisible ones in the spirit realm, we can no longer be fearful about this life or what is to come. Because Jesus is Lord over the church and has chosen to make the church his body on earth, we can get busy living and following Christ's commission as we live for Christ as his body on this planet. The greatness of our salvation, beloved, is directly related to the greatness of Christ. And Christ is great. Let's pray. Lord, we have concluded one of the greatest chapters in your word. Please bind the truths of these verses to our hearts and make them to transform our lives. You have provided such a great salvation to us in Christ. And we live in a world filled with difficulty, pain, and misery. Please empower your people to be agents for gospel transformation, for the glory of your holy name. I pray this in Jesus' name, the name that is above every other name that could be named. Amen.